do you teach kind of the opposite of, hey, reduce your debt as much as you can? Because you mentioned you have free and clear homes. So debt no, is, not a, is not a good thing for you. I think that because I got a 990 on my SAT, right? So I'm not a smart guy. So the only reason I've experienced any levels of success is because I take the I out of my decision-making process and I just do what people who are where I want to be do. And I think that debt is a really funny word because it's misused. And, you know, it's like one of these words like, you know, that don't like, you know, a lot of people in my industry, they use the word scale. They'll call me and they'll say, hey, Tom, I want to, you know, I want to grow my business. I want to scale. These are big high school words or college words that, that they don't really mean anything, right? I think that debt is one of those words. It's very confusing. What is debt, right? Here's what I would explain is, should you be going into consumer debt? Like for instance, who buys a new car and makes payments? Only poor people, right? Wealthy people never, ever, would never even dream of like getting a Lamborghini and having a monthly payment, right? So should you have that kind of debt? Of course not, right? Any wealthy person would tell you you're going to buy a car. You know, another thing from like uh, uh, that poor people suggest that rich people don't is, you know, I want to keep a mortgage on my home to have a tax write-off. That's of course silly and the math doesn't even work. So there's obvious things like that. Cars, boats, you don't do what we would define as consumer debt. But then there's a question of leverage. Should you leverage other people's money that you're not personally responsible to pay back. Let's use just really baby talk here. No, let's not talk about big words like syndications. And let's not talk about big words like, you know, what backs an asset if it's you personally. Let's just talk like regular people right here. Like just like, let's just talk like, like kindergartners. Can you find a good deal or a good opportunity and then have somebody else's money pay for that? And the good opportunity backs that person's money rather than you agreeing to personally. Can you do that? Absolutely all day long. Are there terms for it? Yes. Non-recourse debt. And there's big fancy words like that, but Absolutely. I think you can leverage other people's time, energy, focus, resources, attention, and money, and leverage that for your benefit if you bring something to the table, like finding that good opportunity. Should you go into mountains of debt? No, I think it's not good. Will you make some money doing it? Yes, but I don't think money is the end goal. I think spiritually, it's not good. I think going into a lot of debt is a bad idea. Any way you slice it, consumer debt or otherwise, because there are creative ways to leverage opportunities, not being, and this is the key, not being personally responsible to pay it back. Or another word is indebted to, right? You don't want to be indentured. You don't want to be responsible. Meaning if the opportunity goes bad, if the business goes bad, if the house goes upside down, that you, right, are personally responsible to come up with the money to pay that thing back. I think that's a bad idea. I don't, I, I would not recommend it to other people, but is the only exception to that your own primary residence where you have to personally guarantee it? Yes, 100%. Yeah. 100%. So so the only exception that I make is a personal home. If you and we can get into the weeds here a little bit, but with your income, if you want to, if you follow a really good system for uh, buying a property, you have to buy a property, your primary home, uh, the right way because you need to be able to exit that property. The problem where there's some risk, right? Because we know what gets people in trouble is not paying taxes, going into too much debt. They're all the most common reasons, not diversifying um, 
your asset allocation. But yes, for your primary home, if you buy it right, you should be perfectly fine to go into debt. I think a 30-year mortgage on a home, I know some people recommend a 15. I would definitely not recommend that uh, for obvious reasons. I don't know why people teach to get a 15. That is absolutely a horrible idea. So if anybody out there is considering, they're listening to somebody else and they're saying, well, I should get a 15-year because so-and-so said so, please don't do that because the person who told you to do that earns about $100 million a year. And that's so it's not a good idea to do that. You want to have, remember, the definition of wealth is more and better options. So if you put yourself into a 15-year, you can always pay more, but you don't. You have the option, not the obligation to do so, which is always is one of the basis of, of money and, and wealth. So I like that. So you're saying if you're considering doing a 15-year, don't put yourself in a corner and do it. Just go ahead and pay more per month if you can do it. Yeah. I like 100%. That. There are yeah. all kinds of cool, creative ways to pay down your mortgage really quickly, and you should, especially your primary home should not be have be in debt. There are some people who talk about, well, you know, it so feels good. You own, you know, you go out on the lawn and you walk barefoot and you own the grass. You don't own the grass. You don't own anything. Uh, you're going to die, some of us sooner than others, and it's probably not going to stay in your family. There's no such thing as legacy wealth. It doesn't exist. There's no such thing. If you're going to leave your children something, leave them character. By the time you die, your kids are probably going to be in their 30s or 40s or 50s. If they haven't made it by then, giving them money is the worst thing that you could do. So forget legacy wealth. The whole idea is completely ridiculous. It makes money the most important thing when it's not. You never own your home. If you don't pay your taxes, they will take your home back from you. There's no way to own a home completely free and clear. Should you pay it off and not have a mortgage? Absolutely, yes. How do you buy a home the right way? Put down 20%. It should be two and a half times your income and 20% down. So if you earn $100,000, it should be $250,000. With 20% down, you can almost never get in trouble doing it that way. Is that also a step towards capital preservation as well? Is that, is that the reason why you put that 20%? Because a lot of people teach against that, you know, put as little as you can down, you know, because you want to keep as much money now. It's better to have money now than later. So the whole idea is the greatest thing about the subject of money is that there's no opinion. Everything is proven. It's already been done. You know, there's nothing new under the sun. There's no except for Bitcoin, which is a little bit new, but there's nothing new with money. One of the most important things that wealthy people do that poor people do not do is something, this topic called capital preservation. If you're not really an active investor or a business owner, some people don't really understand what that means, but to really break it down very simply, capital preservation just means that when you make an investment in something or you're putting your time, energy, money, resources, focus on one thing, that you're doing it with the idea that you're going to do everything you can to make sure that you don't lose your initial investment. So that's why a lot of wealthy people are so slow to Bitcoin, right, is a good example because there's not a lot there to say, you know, can I lose the whole thing, right? So most wealthy people are in the stock market most are not in Bitcoin. That could be changing here, but as of this recording, it's not. So capital preservation is the idea that I need to preserve my capital. And, and this goes all this goes across the board to every decision. This is why wealthy people don't buy new cars and finance them, and, and struggling people do. Wealthy people are waiting for you to use that car for a year on a lease or whatever, and then buy it. Capital preservation is one of the reasons for that. They yeah. know their net worth, and they think about their decisions based on how will this decision affect my 
net worth. And I'm not going to do the math for you on the show. You could, you guys listening should do the math. If you have a net worth of a million dollars, which is just like, okay, if you have a million dollar net worth and you buy a $50,000 car or a $65,000 car, do the math on what your net worth just went down. It is crazy town. Are you in the stock market? Are you do invest in the stock market? I do. So I, so my asset allocation is, and it just recently changed and is based on people who are essentially worth 500 million or more. So some of my mentors are have a net worth over 500 million and there's a few of them, but my asset allocation is essentially 55% real estate, 25% stocks, 10% cash or savings, and then physical gold. And there is a little bit of Bitcoin in there, but that to me is... Um, I don't know if I would recommend that anybody goes into Bitcoin, even at one or 2%. It's kind of, uh, it's new. (laughs) It's new for me. You make a good point that most wealthy people invest in stocks. Well, when you're in the real estate circles, it's just 100% about real estate. You can put all your money into real estate. They make it a choice, either stocks or real estate. But you're saying, no, don't make it a choice. You You gotta diversify here. Yeah, well, I think, you know, the question is less about diversification and more about what do you want. So if you are building a rental portfolio for some purpose with you want a certain number of doors, a heavier allocation into real estate, and let's not use the word allocation, but putting more money into real estate than into the stock market is okay. But the problem is what most mature real estate investors eventually find out is that, yes, you can make a lot of money in real estate, but you don't necessarily have to hold it in real estate because all of the dreams of holding real estate really are are nightmares. Um, You're creating a job. The only people I know, and I know a lot of very successful real estate investors all throughout the whole country, some of the most successful real estate investors that are alive today, I either have their cell phone number or I know them personally, not all of them, but a good majority. Well, there's a lot, so I shouldn't say that, but certainly many, many very big name people. I will tell you that as they mature, they go from amateur to professional, they really change their allocation. And the reason is because the only people I know who make money, and there's exceptions, right? So you don't have to get a thousand people who write in, but the only people who are really making money with a lot of doors who are in single family, we're not talking commercial and apartment buildings and mobile home parks, just single family homes, buyers, the landlords who make money, they have a business where they have many, 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 many doors, a hundred doors, and that's their business. They own the property management company. They have a turnkey business or they, they keep the best properties and they have an entire organization that they run. But the everyday landlord with five, 10, 15 doors, It's not the utopia that people will tell you about when you first start. It's great. It can be great if that's what you want. But the reason for the stocks is because you can get a really great return in the stock market, in some cases better than real estate as far as the cash flow goes, the the year over year equity, not the equity in the homes. This is a complicated topic and I know very sensitive, but yes, (laughs) I do not think that 100%, if you're a real estate investor of of your assets should be in real estate, definitely not. When you were, you said you were broke until 33. What happened at that age? So I lost my job. I was fired. I was fired from, I was in sales and 
at that time I was in lawn care and it was a lot of work and not a lot of money. And I was fired and I called my older brother who was a real estate investor. And he said, get into real estate. I'm, I'm like, no way. He pulls me kicking and screaming the whole way. And I did, and I loved it. But I'll tell you, I went to a conference when I started. My brother paid for me because I was I was totally broke, totally broke. You know, people say they were totally broke, but I was literally totally broke. And uh, my brother paid for me. And one of the things I learned at the conference, it was a Sean Terry conference for wholesaling real estate. It was in Atlanta. And I met so many awesome people there, Nazar, and people I'm still friends with today, Blaze, Delmonico, and uh, I'm thinking who else was there. But my brother took me. And it was a great conference. Uh, Sean Terry is awesome. Everybody should check him out. But I learned a few things there. Number one is they recommended a book to me called The Four Spiritual Laws of Prosperity and Rhinoceros Success, which I bought. I loved. I started taking right away. I had massive things. But the things, if you said, why was I successful? I attribute my success to a few things. Number one, I started tithing. I wasn't really tithing before, not really, not 10% of my income. Everybody there told me to. I had three people tell me to do that within a 24-hour period. So I started doing that, and uh, that's amazing. If you're not doing that, huge mistake. Were you, at the time, were you religious like you are now? Were you a believer in God at the time? Yes, I was a Christian. I just wasn't tithing. I wasn't following the word. And, And, you know, some people, they argue about, in the Christian faith, they argue about, you know, I would just say this, anybody who's on the fence, if they want to argue about it, I'm not going to have any arguments about it. I know what I know, and I know that this is real and God's word is real. But what I would say is this is the only time in the Bible where God says, test me. It's in Malachi chapter three, verse eight. It's also in the New Testament. It's in Matthew 23, 23. If anybody you know says, well, tithing's not in the New Testament. It is. I also think that this is something I would encourage you guys to do 90 days. Just start tithing. 10% of all the income that comes into your house, give it back to God. That could be your church, temple, synagogue, mosque, four person, a charity. I like to do it to church, but that's your call. Second thing I started doing was reading. I realized I, I had these epiphanies when I was at this conference. It wasn't so much what Sean was saying. And Sean was giving me great advice from stage about how to be a real estate investor. But deeper than that, you know, this whole idea of tithing and reading, he kept, I kept noticing everyone in the room who was worth over a million dollars kept talking about books. I mean, I have literally, if you open up my phone right now, I have text messages I've gotten from my mentors. I mean, I won't say their names. I mean, but this is just, I mean, this is literally, these are the kind of texts you get. This is one of my dear friends and mentors. His name is Orrin Woodward. He is the author of some of the books behind me. He is a phenomenal rock star that everybody should hope to be like when they're older. And uh, what does he send me? Pictures of reading, right? He's reading, this is a chapter out of the Bible, but these are, you know, if you scroll through my notes with all of all the people who I'm friends with who I respect and I follow, it's all books. And if you go through my text message to people who are struggling financially, they're talking about Game of Thrones and the Queen's Gambit is a new one or something like that. Um, They're talking about shows. Wealthy people are talking about books. So tithing and reading were key. And then the other thing I noticed too, and this was something that they were talking about at that conference was Jim Rohn's advice is that you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with. That is... So true, because trying not to have the people you spend time with affect you is like trying to go swimming without getting wet. It's literally impossible. If you go and hang out with people who are always having an emergency, they're always a victim, they're always struggling, you're going to fall right into this. There's a 
difference between empathy and sympathy. And uh, the people you're around affect you so much that you cannot even believe it. And uh, I started to change my group. I said goodbye to some people that were not good for me. I love them very much, but I stopped spending so much time with them. One person in particular that was very hard to do with it. But yeah, that I mean, that's life and money are really, really simple. But when you break the rules, when you're not tithing, when you're not giving, when you're trying to hoard money, when one of the biggest lessons of all small business owners and all financially free people, focusing on fewer things, focusing more on fewer things, right? We learn about this from Rhinoceros Success from Scott Alexander, from you learn it from the one thing with Gary Keller, from the pumpkin plan with Mike Michalowicz, from, you know, just go on and all these business books, they're all the same lessons again and again and again. Focus more on fewer things. People who are struggling do. There are multiple endeavors, right? Even business people, right? They have this going on and this and this, multiple marketing channels. People who are wealthy and successful, one marketing channel, one activity, one craft, building that one craft, sticking with it. It's just easy. And um, yeah, that's where I'm at. I mean, I just love, I love that kind of stuff. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I love it, man. Keep going if you can. No, I, I love it. No, did you raise money? Because we talked about raising money earlier. I wanted to raise a question about raising money. Did, did you do that a lot for your for your ventures in Wholesaling Inc. and PL uh, Wholesaling? Yeah, so so few few different things to talk about there, right? So here are some really awesome secrets. When I first started, I went broke literally because I was in debt. I, I was not only a hyperspender, but I was going into debt to make financial decisions like buying real estate, which I lost and it was a disaster. Then I was, at that time when I first started, I was following some people who would encourage me to go into debt to buy rentals, which I did. And it wasn't horrible, but it was a strain that I didn't need. Now that I'm older and a little bit more matured, I like to do creative deals where I don't have to take on debt. So it was kind of a journey that I went through. My primary home, I did take them out of mortgage and then I bought another home and I took out a mortgage on that and then a vacation home and I took out a mortgage on that. Almost all of that is paid off. My primaries are, but my vacation home is not. But I think that if I would have started from day one, I probably wouldn't have taken on any debt at all except for my primary home, except for my primary home. But you know, mastering the art of creative deal-making let me just say this to anybody who's listening to like creative deal making. What is that? You know, it takes money to make money. Here's what I will tell you. It doesn't take money to make money, but it does take a lot of money for your money to make money. So what that means is, right? Because what the heck does that mean? Is that learning how to make money without having money and invest and, and acquire assets and all that is really fairly brain dead simple. Any book that you pick up will teach you how to do that. So If I were to go back now, I would have just done creative financing and probably avoided debt. I will not sit here and say that going into debt, when I learned how to do it properly and focus on capital preservation, it did help me increase my net worth over time, but I was in a risky situation. One thing that is important to talk about, if we're going to talk about this, is that when did I go into real estate investment? So I'm 41. I went in when I was 33. Right now, it's 2020. So that means, if anybody who's really paying attention, that means that from the day I started in real estate investing, every single house in the entire country was worth more tomorrow than it was yesterday. That's not typical. And that's why I was able to get away with going into a little bit of debt. And I didn't go into massive amounts of debt. I was very conservative. But going forward and what I've done recently and what I would recommend to students is avoid debt except for your primary home. You really don't need it. You, you can do creative deal making without a problem. 
Does that creative finance deals include partnering up with uh, private lenders? Yeah, as long as the lenders are willing to back the asset, not you. Ah, that's the key. Yeah. Yeah. Let me just be really crystal clear about all of this. This is really simple. I don't care if whatever, because there's, when you get into this subject of creative deal making, it's all, it could get so convoluted with big SAT words and all this other stuff. Let's keep it really simple. This is what you want to ask the lender. If, because the deal can go south, if the deal goes south, do you understand that I'm not going to take any of that risk? I am not personally backing this loan, note, money, borrowing it, whatever. If that's the case, go for it, right? Do what you got to do. I love it. But if they say to you, oh, no, 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 Tom, hey, if this deal goes south, I'm coming to you for that money, I'm out. You can sum up all of creating creative investing and all the twists and turns and everything is negotiable with that. If you're responsible, it's debt, avoid it. If you're not, you're good to go. You're leveraging opportunity and other people's money. You've got a green light as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Are you still buying real estate right now? Are you are you in the, in the market right now? No, I'm not. I, I am. So one of the things I learned as an investor, which was so you know wonderful, I said a moment ago, right, that you don't need money to make money, but you need a lot of money for your money to make money, right? So what the heck does that mean? Well, the back end of that means that sometimes you hear wealthy people and they'll say like, man, it's amazing. Like my money makes money. I don't even have to do anything. In order to get to that point, one of the things I learned about early on was something called the 1031 exchange, which I know you know about. And that has been phenomenal. So what you can do is the best way to think about it is like a garden, right? So you have some free and clear rentals and they're producing enough cash that the tenant is paying for your equity, meaning that the tenant is paying you for your net worth to go up every month because they're paying stuff down or the property is a good home and a good neighborhood and a good good school district and it's fairly new. So it's going up in value. And then what you can do is you can take those homes and you can sell them to buy a more expensive home. The key is it's got to be a more expensive home. And you could go, you could upgrade the location and the area and all of that. So We've been mainly focused on that, but my fixed percentage of asset allocation of 55%, it only readjusts if it goes down. So for instance, if my allocation, because my other assets have went up and my real estate asset allocation went down to 50 or 45%, at that point, I would either do a 1031 exchange, meaning that I would buy a more, I would sell a cheaper home and buy a more expensive one. So I don't know how familiar your audience is with these terms. That's why I'm trying to, uh, if I'm over explaining, I apologize. No, no, it's um, great. Okay. So I would just do that or I would probably buy another home, but I wouldn't, at that point, I'd probably just go directly to buying an expensive property. I, I like expensive homes in good areas that are in great school districts that are fairly new. The rule that Julie and I follow now is if I wouldn't live there, I'm not going to buy it. And my, I have pretty high standards. I will. Yeah, you. you know what? That seems to be uh, the the rule that a lot of people, once they get to a couple decades of investing, they just that's their maximum rule right there <laughs> to investing. Yeah, yeah. It, it's something that comes with maturity and under. That's it, the difference between an amateur and a professional, right? Because we're chased. and the reason is is because you what you start to realize is it's you're not chasing money. You're just seeking the conditions that produce it wealth. And wealth is not tied so heavily to money anymore. Money is just one symptom of wealth. 